on the last episode of the podcast, Justin and I were talking about how much we loved the critic Leonard Maltin's new autobiography, Starstruck. It felt like a book that was really just written for us. And we were like, wouldn't it be great if we could talk to Leonard Maltin about this book? You know, just have a bit of a jam session with Leonard himself. Leonard Maltin is known as one of the top critics to ever live. His face is on the movie guide. And I think there is an association sometimes that like, oh, he's more, you know, what's new, what's current, and what is the popular opinion? Because, you know, the movie guide still gets used at Bay Street Video, they still have it. And I asked my pal Mark Hansen, who works there, do people still check it? And he's like, yep, they always do because they want to see what the consensus is. Yeah, and he was on Entertainment Tonight for decades. Definitely in a lot of people's head, the image of the mainstream movie critic. But the thing about Leonard Walton is Leonard is a freak. Leonard was editing his own zine, Film Fan Monthly, when he was, what, 15 years old. He was writing to old Hollywood stars when he was just a teenager. He's the world authority on our gang slash the little rascals. Nobody loves old Hollywood movies more than this man. And even like in the 2000s, he started a new movie zine called Movie Crazy. And when you look at the articles that are published in it, I have a book here that has some of them. They are the like deepest cuts, a whole chapter on a mascot musical called Young and Beautiful with lines like, any movie that features a close-up of Franklin Pangborn in its first scene can't all be bad. <laughs> I mean, first of all, I'm like, who's Franklin Pangborn? <laughs> but that's what I love about Leonard Maltin is that like his passion for cinema is like so deep and nerdy, which you wouldn't usually think about if you just saw him like, every night on Entertainment Tonight. But, you know, he's also somebody who has used his power, used the profile that he got from Entertainment Tonight and the movie guide for good. He's channeled it into so many endeavors like the Walt Disney Classics DVD sets where he would provide these wonderful curation and contextualizing information for all those Disney obscurities, various TV specials on subjects ranging from classic Hollywood cartoons to the Three Stooges. I bet we wouldn't have many of those Disney cartoons if it wasn't for Leonard Maltin's work, especially like all those World War II cartoons, now they'd never be released or just be available in really crummy, doopy prints. Yeah, for decades, Dare Fuhrer's face just lingered in the Disney vault until Leonard Malton cracked the code of how to put this back on the marketplace. We owe this guy a lot. And his new autobiography, Starstruck, on the cover, it looks like, oh, I'll just take you through my career and all of the famous people that I met, like Will Smith or Leonardo DiCaprio. And it is that in part, but it's also a deep dive about like the Golden Boot Awards, uh, the widows of B-movie filmmakers that he knew. And it's just like pure Leonard Maltin in the form that me and Will love the most. So listen, we just wanted to spend some time with the man. Without further ado, Leonard Maltin. Thanks so much for giving us this time, Leonard. We are very big fans. We loved the book too, by the way. We were both oh, reading We were both reading it. And you know, when when it got to the part where you had an anecdote about meeting Billy Gilbert, mm -hmm. I said to Justin, it's as if this was written exactly for us. So, you know, <laughs> thank you so much. When you decided to write Starstruck, did you know what structure it was going to take, or did you have a series of topics that you wanted to tackle? In school my least favorite thing to do was outlining. So now that I'm out of school, I don't outline. <laughs> From the beginning, it seems like it will be a chronological journey through your career. Mm -hmm. And then a few chapters in, you're like, ah, I just want to write about the stuff that I want to write about. You, you read my mind. <laughs> <laughs> did you have a challenge putting it together, like figuring out what topics you wanted to tackle or did it just pop right into your head? 
pretty much it popped into my head. Uh, every now and then I would take a breath, review what I'd written so far, and then realize that I hadn't included this person or that person or, or that experience and say, well, this might go, that might go well right here. Well, you know, we grew up with your movie guide, of course, but I think we gained an even greater appreciation for your work through a lot of the work you did as a film historian, like the book that Justin just showed about comedy teams, the short subjects book, of course. Do you think of yourself primarily as a critic or a historian? Well, it's film history that first got me hooked on all of this, and it's still my first love. Uh, I've been um, a very fortunate to make a living, and mostly that's been, you know, under the guise of film critic. Saying you want to make a living as a film historian is like saying you want to manufacture buggy whips. You know? <laughs> <laughs> not, not, a, not a growth area of the economy. And so when you were putting Starstruck together, were there any topics that you or perhaps an editor considered, oh, no, that's too obscure, Leonard, you can't include that? I, I am blessed having an editor publisher who may be small in the scheme of things uh, as against, uh, you know, Simon & Schuster or, or one of the, the giant publishers but who is uh, like-minded and also a diehard movie buff. And I, I had free reign. Yeah. When I picked up the book, I went to the index and I thought, I wonder if there's anything about Jerry Lewis in here. <laughs> and of course, there's a whole chapter. And then and then he shows up again in the Sammy Davis Jr. chapter. Yep. <laughs> you know, something that comes across in the book, I think, is you're always hustling. You know, you're always looking for the next gig, which is interesting to read because you're probably one of like three critics who everyone knows. Did you ever get to a point where you felt comfortable that you'd made it? Well, I felt uh, I felt that I arrived somewhat when I was hired by Entertainment Tonight and uh, got for the first time in my life a weekly paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> and and they, they were paying me for doing something I you know probably would have paid them to let me do. And in the bargain, you know, became better known because of all that exposure on a hit TV show. That, that was a, just a <laughs> fluke that I could never plan and you could never account for in, in any rational way. It's kind of an oxymoronic thing, isn't it? The idea of a film critic celebrity. I mean, it's sort of <laughs> you and Roger Ebert are the two who did it. I mean, what did it feel? I have to assume that all of a sudden you started getting recognized. And what did that feel like? It was mostly nice. I mean, I'm not Brad Pitt. People weren't, you know, uh, uh, you know, storming me for, for selfies. When I started, they didn't have selfies. <laughs> uh, or, you know, or a lock of my hair or an article of my clothing. Mostly people would say hi, more often friendly than not, I have to say. Uh, so no Jerry Lewis and King of Comedy style moments with people on the street? No, no, not none. I wouldn't say none. <laughs> uh, the, you know, mostly it's been it's been positive or people, you know, will say something they think is kind of a, a witty or original, like seeing any good movies lately. Mm -hmm. um, sure. But that, that, if that's the worst that happens to you, you don't have any cause to complain. And when you became a regular critic for Entertainment Tonight, did you feel that open doors that you didn't have access to before to kind of go after projects that you always wanted to do, but now that, you know, you were a little bit uh, better well-known, you had access to them? It opened the door for me to interview so many, many, many people. Some of that was, uh, most of that was their doing, but some of it was mine. I knew the difference. I had tried making those calls or writing those letters before when no one knew who I was. And I had, I had amazing success, actually. Uh, but when you call and you say, 
hi, I'm calling from entertainment tonight. People paid attention. Well, you know, I get the sense from the book that one of the chief appeals to you was that you were able to sort of sneak all this film buff stuff onto what was a very mainstream TV show, like the whole chapter on the Golden Boot Awards, for instance. Was there something that you were particularly proud of that you felt you were kind of getting away with getting on E.T.? Lupino Lane. Lupino Lane, for those who don't know, uh, was a big star in England and uh, hailed from a family with show business in its blood for generations. His niece was Ida Lupino, and uh, who kept that name, that family name alive. And Lupino Lane uh, came here to Hollywood in the 20s and made some wonderful uh, silent comedies. I wanted to really do a piece on him. And his signature show called Me and My, Me and My Girl uh, had been revived in London to great success, and they brought it here to the States and opened on Broadway with Jim Dale in the leading role. And I read somewhere that Jim Dale was a fan of Lupino Lane. And I thought, well, if the if the star of a Broadway hit is going to be my wedge to get the door open, I'm going to follow it. So in fact, I uh, called our New York office at ET and asked them to call the press agents for the show. And they arranged a backstage interview with Jim Dale, who not only couldn't have been nicer, but had a Lupino Lane doll in his dressing room. That was my entree to do this piece. And then I, I licensed footage from the Lubitsch musical, The Love Parade with Maurice Chevalier, which has him in one of his best showcases. And when my bosses, there were two bosses who shared executive producer credit at that time, who didn't know anything about this era or anything, they came in to watch the piece in the editing bay and said, we want more of uh, that stuff, more of that footage, Lapino Lane. Uh, you, you can even cut uh, Jim Dale. It's like, no, I mean, that, that's not fair. That, <laughs> we took up his time, his interview, <laughs> promised them a plug for their show. And they said, well, grudgingly, they said, okay. <laughs> and I got Lapino Lane on Entertainment Tonight. Oh, that's amazing. So was that like a regular occurrence where you'd come like, oh, I have an angle on this. And your producers would be like, wait a minute. Do you just want to interview old Hollywood figures for the show? Mostly I got away with it. If the piece was entertaining and they enjoyed it, not being, you know, dedicated film buffs, then they figured that, you know, the, the audience would enjoy it too. The, <laughs> the one time, or there are several times, the, there was one time when my producer, the producer of the weekend show, we had an hour long weekend version of E.T. And the pressure was much uh, less there because the, the ratings didn't really matter on that show. And the, uh, it was kind of an, an addenda and or addendum. And um, I did a piece on Candy Candido, uh, <laughs> whose specialty was... Having a very, very high voice that he could make go very, very low. And he'd been a regular on Jimmy Durante's radio show. He did incidental voices for cartoons and just a colorful character. <laughs> my, my producer said, hmm, I don't know about that candy candy. He let it run. He let it. Oh, so good. <laughs> to my relief and his and his possible regret. <laughs> Did you find it difficult while you were doing E.T.? Because you, you don't really, you talk about it kind of like as an entryway in Starstruck of like meeting all the figures that you write like chapters about. Did you find it difficult because you were seeing so many new films to keep like the love for your golden age Hollywood still alive? Oh, no, that was easy. That was easy because the chore part, part that could seem like a chore at times, was watching a lot of the, the crummy new movies. <laughs> And so it, it was, you know, it, it buoyed my spirits 
to spend some quality time in the past. Speaking of being in the past, you know, there's something I think I read maybe a decade ago that you wrote about being pen pals with Mo Howard. Could I ask you to tell that story here? Because I've encountered very few people who were pen pals with Mo Howard. Who had the most, uh, the loveliest cursive handwriting. <laughs> he, he wrote notes on uh, on plain sheets of paper and occasionally a, a Three Stooges envelope uh, would arrive in my mailbox. I don't remember how I first got to him. I really don't. But I, I, I wrote a letter and I asked something I knew that I figured no one could have asked him, which was about the great comedian Charlie Chase, who actually directed the Three Stooges in the late 1930s a little bit. And that must have tickled his fancy or, you know, or brought back a happy memory. And he wrote me several pages about working with Charlie Chase. And then he was very impressed with the, the results of what I did. It was it was very flattering and very exciting. I've always loved when you appear as a talking head in documentaries or specials, especially the stuff you did on the Disney Treasures disc, which mm-hmm. I really appreciated the chapter on in Starstruck. And mm-hmm. it, I mean, it's so frustrating at the end where you're like, I had so much more to do. And you're like, what they just said they didn't want to do anymore. But I have to ask about the Dick Tracy special and how that came about, which you host and you just ask questions to the real Dick Tracy on set and also narrate it. The actual, the actual Dick Tracy himself, <laughs> yeah. I, I think. Yes. In character. Right. Well, uh, <laughs> I got a call from my producer at uh, Walt Disney Home Entertainment, who'd been supervising all those DVD sets. And also in, in his day job was producing the uh, DVD releases of current Disney product. So Warren Beatty called him because he wanted to do a new edition of Dick Tracy, the film that he directed and starred in and produced. And he had an idea for it. He said he wanted to have Charlie Rose, who at the time was like the prestigious talk show on television. He wanted to have Charlie Rose interview Dick Tracy in a sort of a replica of Charlie Rose's set, which was just a a big round wooden table and lighting that fell off behind the two. They could have been in a cave somewhere. <laughs> so my, my guy at Disney said, well, why don't you use Leonard? You know, he's as credible as Charlie Rose uh, talking about this, this kind of stuff. And uh, Warren Beatty said, sure. And then I got a phone call. Saying, Would I be willing to do it? And I said, sure. They even paid me money. <laughs> and and uh, the, the last thing Warren said to me, the Warren, <laughs> Mr. Beatty said to me uh, the day before uh, we were going to shoot was watch out for the yellow coat. It it really, really makes a statement, he said. And he wasn't wrong when he swept into (laughs) onto the stage wearing that. uh, I hate everything is iconic now. (laughs) Instantly recognizable top coat. It's hard to be blasé. And I'm sure in his style, he probably like did hundreds of takes with you and him. There is a possibility that on a soundstage in Glendale, he is still shooting. (laughs) In the credits, it says that Emmanuel Lubezki shot that. I mean, he he shot your segments too. Indeed. Well, not a lot of people have acted with Warren Beatty this century. So it's an incredible uh, uh, artifact. And and been shot by Chivo, you know, the, the, the world renowned cinematographer. You've started and you're hosting with your daughter, Jesse, the Malton on Movies podcast. Have you 
you found that a new audience has formed that you've heard from people that weren't familiar with your work before and have just started listening to the podcast? Uh, yes, to some degree. We've gone to Comic-Con, uh, which has been uh, a non-starter during COVID. But uh, up till two years ago, we went every year to the Comic-Con mostly to just say hello. I've been frankly amazed by the number of younger people who hmm. are familiar with me. Jesse came up with a great idea for a panel called You're Wrong, Leonard Maltin, <laughs> where we would give people an outlet to call me out on reviews they strongly or violently disagreed with. And fortunately, the very first guy at the mic set the tone for the rest of the, the panel. He, he didn't take it that seriously. He had a genuine beef with me about, I think, one of the Batman movies, but he did it with, with a smile on his face. And so we didn't have any cursing or, you know, or, or name calling or anything like that. It was, it was just fun. And we did it again the next year and got an even bigger turnout. So I hope someday to resume. And over the years, have you ever used the excuse when people come up to you saying like, oh, you gave this a bad review in the movie guide that you're like, oh, I didn't write that one. Or do you just smile and nod when it happens? In the olden days, I did pass the buck <laughs> from time to time on certain titles. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but heck, my name's on the, on the cover. And though I am not the author of every review in the book, because nobody could have seen 16,000 movies and and live to tell about it or if they do their their dribbling or drooling uh, <laughs> so so i i have ducked every now and then is taxi driver the one you get the most flack for i think overall yes although blade runner is a is close second so you know on a completely different note we're both i, I know from your book that you're a wheeler and woolsey fan who isn't oh, I wait, know. Wait, I know. my wife yes <laughs> I remember you on a podcast saying that you showed one of the movies and your wife said something like, never show that again. <laughs> I, I actually have a story along those lines. During the holidays last year, I put on Diplomaniacs and I said to my girlfriend, it's been a while since I've seen this. I think there might be some racism in it. It turns out there was a lot. <laughs> Wise guy. Do you have any favorites in the Wheeler and Woolsey catalog? Well, that's that's right up there. Yeah. Uh, but I like that a lot. And I like uh, hips, hips, hooray. The same ones everyone else likes a lot. <laughs> Speaking of like getting, you know, new people into older films, what strategies do you utilize when you teach your classes? Like, do you go for the big obvious ones? Do you go in with the deep cuts? What are the strategies you've developed over the years? Well, the class that I've been teaching for 22 years at USC here in Los Angeles is an unusual class. It doesn't have a real curriculum. It's a weekly screening, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, a new movie. By new, I mean about to open, maybe the next day. And uh, we have either the, the writer, the director, the producer, cinematographer, composer, costume designer, production designer, sometimes an actor or two. And if we have more than one guest from the film, that makes it even more interesting to hear mm -hmm. you know, about the collaboration. So that's the mandate that I had. And it's not a film history class. But after teaching it for a couple of years, I was feeling settled in. And, you know, this is the famous class that started in the 60s. George Lucas took this class. Alfred Hitchcock came to this class. This is all before I got there. Although I did have Alfred Hitchcock's granddaughter. Oh, nice. As a student. <laughs> so the way I felt I, I could proceed was by showing a vintage short. I could open the class with an old cartoon or an old short subject and kind of expose them to a little bit of film history and do a little precy introduction. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've done ever since. 
But even in doing that, I've figured out stuff that doesn't play and, and stuff that does. What's an example of something that does and that doesn't? The one that surprised me that didn't play is the Fox Movie Tone interview with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of Sherlock Holmes. It was filmed in 1927 or 28, very, very early in the history of sound. He's quite charming and uh, low-key but witty, and it never seemed to, to land. I showed it one night when my guest was Guillermo del Toro. He knew the short very, very well and was crazy about it and was so glad that I was running it. Along with his, <laughs> along with Pan's Labyrinth, so that validated me in my mind. But I, I've stopped playing it. What does Adolf Zucker call his book? The audience is never wrong. Has there been any projects that you've wanted to tackle, whether it be in book form or even in video form, that you still have like on your calendar and you just haven't gotten to for any number of reasons? Nothing formal. Nothing where I've you know written out a you know an exact game plan. I did think that having taught this class, I know how interesting it is to watch a new movie and then talk to someone about it who, who was involved with it. And I don't mean the, the, the A-list, I don't, I don't mean James Cameron necessarily or Steven Spielberg, but people who work with them, their, their production designer, their costume mm -hmm. designer, their composer. These people have wonderful stories and a great perspective. And I, I pitched that as an idea for like a half hour show where maybe I'd have two guests on each program, or maybe if, if it was an especially great guest, uh, just one solo. And there's less than no interest in that. Uh, that reminds me of the uh, book you wrote, The Art of Cinematography, where you get like these deep interviews with the cinematographers, some names that like even now people don't really know. But that's what's fascinating, seeing that angle on the movies that oftentimes we just consume and only think of the director or the writer or the star. Yep. In fact, some of the best guests I've had have come from what they call below the line. I, I promise we won't keep you forever, but I do want to ask about a book that was just reissued, which you kind of grandfathered into being, which is that wonderful book, B-Movies by Don Miller. I love the book. It's a wonderful godsend. Could you just talk a little bit about what it is and how it came to be? Well, the man who gave me my first job in publishing, which was doing the first edition of the movie guide, moved from Signet Books, where he was at the time, to a, a, a smallish company called Popular Library. And they had an even smaller subdivision called Curtis Books. And he said, uh, I want you to give me a line of film books, original film books, but I can't put you under contract. I, I don't have the money for that. You'll have to become a book packager, in essence. You go out, find somebody who's willing to write the book, for X dollars, you take your X dollars off the top, pay them, and, and we have nothing to do with, with the author. You have all communication with that. I pitched ideas that I was interested in or friends of friends of mine who had already shown interest in doing certain things. And Don Miller was a one-man walking movie encyclopedia. People say that about me sometimes. People say that about others who are very, very knowledgeable. Don Miller beat them all. He passed away many, many years ago but not before I got him to write two manuscripts, one called B-Movies and one called Hollywood Corral about B-Westerns. Oh, that one's so hard to get a hold of. I'm like, oh, I want this one on Poverty Row Westerns. <laughs> he had a photographic memory of everything he'd ever seen since the 1930s. And he'd seen a lot. So that's how the B-Movies book came about. 
Uh, I was its, uh, I don't know what you call them, its midwife, perhaps. It's a wonderful book because it, it weaves this tapestry. You get a sense of a whole ecosystem of B-movie production from mm-hmm. sort of the major studio B-unit to Monogram and PRC and places like that. And I mean, most people today don't understand what a B-movie traditionally was. Like you read the book and there are so few classics in there. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, because he, he went by the strict definition, uh, which in those days meant the second feature on a double bill, which were commonplace uh, in movie theaters all over. Well, I don't know about all over the world, for sure here in the U.S. and Canada, uh, there was the A movie and then there was the B movie. And the A movie is the one that you likely paid the money to see uh, unless you were one of those people. And that probably includes the three of us. Unless you're one of those people <laughs> who went deliberately to see Mr. Moto takes a chance or something like that. We're like, it's not a chaser. No, no, this is, we, we came for this one. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to take up any more of your time. Thank you so much for doing this. And we just, me and Will, I think we both want to let you know as well that we are big fans of Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn Gorilla. <laughs> Well, then you're right, guys, as far as I'm concerned. I, I w- <laughs> wish, you know, I dreamed that I could have gone to see that screening oh. that you held in L.A. I, I assume it was a crowd pleaser, right? Yes, it was. <laughs> it was. It was the last film in our little homegrown uh, Filton Festival called Malton Fest. And we may not have had the biggest turnout in Hollywood that night, but we had the most enthusiastic, I'm sure. Anytime any of the people that I know went to that screening, like Drew Friedman, show up on your podcast, I cannot get to it fast enough being like, oh, just Leonard and Drew just throwing names that I'm like writing down, being like, I need to do more research into these people. <laughs> well, thanks so much for taking the time. We really do appreciate it. Yeah, well, thanks so much, Leonard. I thank you. And thank you for saying those nice things about Starstruck. Uh, it, it means a great deal to me. The guys like you who are really, as they say in the, the movie Freaks, one of us. Oh. <laughs> Leonard, for you to tell me that uh, means the world. Coming from you. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Take Excellent. care, sir. Now comes the awkward goodbye. Yeah, the awkward, <laughs> as we go and like look for a stop video and leave. <laughs>